Hi, I'm Jeremy Hall, and you are listening to the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. With me today, as always, is my co-host and friend, Dr. David Gushy. How are you, David? I'm good, Jeremy. How are you, my friend? I'm hanging in there. Um, ready to talk about this next chapter, though. It's a really interesting one. It expands. Listener, if you didn't listen to the previous episode, um, episode three of the show, this really sort of goes into the. I think they're companions. You need both of them. This takes it I would deeper. Say- this this chapter, which is called "Secular Revolutions and Religious Counter Revolutions," it is another whack at what is exactly happening here. What is exactly happening right now? Yes, yeah, so I do think it is a companion to authoritarian reactionary Christianity. Yeah, so we we looked at what authoritarian reactionary Christianity is, and this is kind of what it does. Is that yeah, fair? It attempts. Yeah, it attempts a religious counter revolution. To what it believes to be secular revolutions yeah okay well give me the what's the premise what's the thesis of secular revolutions and christian counter-revolution there is a great political philosopher named michael walzer he's over 90 now he's not active anymore publicly but he was a favorite of my teacher glenn stassen and <laughs> walzer wrote about he's jewish he wrote about all kinds of things that i cite in the book some of it including his work on the political implications of the hebrew bible which i think is really good um but he also had a book in 2015 called the paradox of liberation secular revolutions and religious counter-revolutions and um walzer studies three countries that became independent new nations after World War II. And those countries are Algeria, India, and Israel. And he finds with each of them um, that the founding regime of these post-colonial or post-World War II countries was explicitly secular. Secular, liberal, democratic. Be the Um, opposite of what they were as vassals or non-existent or subjugated they were uh you know colonized i mean that area uh in each in each case that area had been dominated by a european power right um and so um india was predominantly but not exclusively of course hindu but the founders of the modern state of india wanted to create a multi-faith like let's say freedom of religion freedom for religion but a secular government Mm -hmm. algeria uh the muslim background africa the founders of modern algeria wanted a um secular religiously tolerant government and of course israel um the founders of the modern state of israel which had been building for a while and then had a lot of influx of people who were refugees from the holocaust survivors um was founded as a a secular um, state for the Jewish people, but not um, not like a, like a state under Jewish like Jewish laws and Torah. Uh, right. It was a liberal democracy, a secular liberal democracy, on a Western paradigm. Walzer says that within fifteen or twenty years, in each case, the secularism 
um, of the founding regime had been displaced by a religious counter-revolution. It was gradual, and you can still see it. And the the, the case I, I pick up in the, this chapter is the one that I know best. Uh, it's Israel. And uh, Israel um, has increasingly been torn between those who still believe in a essentially freedom of religion, freedom from religion, freedom for religion, secular, liberal democracy, and those who are more and more attracted to a kind of a, a religious imposition of a specific vision of, of Jewish law kind of state. And so he, in the book, Walzer talks about the process and the reasons why an original um, pluralist, more secular, liberal democratic vision gets displaced by this religious counter-revolution. So, um, you know, I talk some in the chapter about what has happened in Israel and talk about my experience actually visiting Israel and getting a taste of this with the settlers in the um, occupied territories and the militant uh, uh, kind of religious um, Zionist types, as well as the ultra-Orthodox uh, Haredim. Um, but, but the main interest for me is just this concept, secular revolution, religious counter-revolution, can document, and I do in the chapter, that there are many conservative Christians who that is how they interpret what has happened in America since the 60s. So their narrative is, this was a Christian country following Christian values all the way until the year Gushy was born. It's all his fault, <laughs> 1962. I know some people that do think that. Right. And then the secularists came, and they did a revolution. They, they took did it. a revolution. Hmm? They took it. They took it, and they took it sector by sector. They took the government. They took Hollywood. They took the universities. They took business. They took the military, if they could. They took uh, local communities. They took the K-12 schools. Hollywood. They took Hollywood. They took New York. They, they took the mainstream media. So this is, this is the inverse of Seven Mountain theology. Well, Seven Mountain theology could be seen as a reaction to this hypothesis. So the liberals took the heights, the commanding heights of culture, politics, government, and and it and it's been ruining our society. So what we need is a religious counter-revolution. And that's what is being attempted. So you think of any area in which you feel like liberals are in charge. And by the way, the hypothesis is that the liberals are intolerant, domineering, and unwilling to make space for people who don't buy their agenda. Um, and what I would say is there's some truth to that in some sectors. Or just in general, what the liberals are producing, like, for example, grotesque Hollywood movies mm -hmm. uh, or TV shows filled with um, violence or uh, moral chaos. The new HBO dating show that's filmed totally nude. Is that right? Okay, yep, People I'm, are I've freaking missed, out about it. Okay, I missed that one. But, you know ever more transgressive, ever more outrageous. And and then you add this, they're coming for our children. 
we're trying to raise them as Christians. The secularists are trying to re-socialize them in a different way. So what we need is a religious counter-revolution. And that's going to require leaders in every sector. We need people to go into business, into Hollywood, into the mass mainstream media, into the universities, into the law schools, into the school boards, into the local governments, into the national government. It'd be best if we could have a good Christian strongman to really provide leadership at the top. But but we need people in every sector. We need a religious counter-revolution. So you see how it pairs nicely with reactionary. The reaction is to secularism or or to liberalism. And the counter-revolution is underway. And I would say the thing I like about this language is I think you could go to any conservative Christian university or think tank or scholar and say, would you say that the need right now is for a religious counter-revolution? Most of them would say, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, I, I am 10 minutes from the main campus of Pensacola Christian College, infamous uh, conservative Christian organization, uh, one of the only three schools that a faithful Christian should go to, I've heard. Is Bob there. Jones in there too? Bob Jones, or uh, it might be down to two. It was Bob Jones... Pensacola and Liberty. I think Liberty's been kicked out for being so liberal. So there are only two schools for Christians, and one of them is down the street. And I feel confident that they teach with this language that you could hear, we need a Christian counter-revolution in a civics classroom there. But what what scares me pastorally is because I... I want the kingdom to advance. These sound like good things. So these, my people are vulnerable to this sort of language, but also the, the language itself is violent. Uh, There's a military you, paradigm. Uh, it is a military paradigm. And here's what I think. You can only talk about culture, war, revolution, combat, mortal combat, conquest, reconquest for so long without a certain percentage of people taking you literally rather than metaphorically. Right, and that's how we teach them to take the Bible in these spaces. That is true, yeah. Um, and I, I actually in the book document where you can you can see, let me give you a couple quotes from this chapter. A guy named Glenn Elmers from the Claremont Institute said this, it's all hands on deck as we enter the counter-revolutionary moment. Hmm. And then he also said, the 81 million Americans, he didn't say the number, but those Americans, those people who voted for Joe Biden for president in 2020 were, quote, not Americans in any meaningful sense of the term. Well, I saw, there was, um, Eric Metaxas has a TV show for some reason. Um, and he recently had a guest on, and I've seen this clip going around, talking about how Mike Pence cannot be a Christian. He is either an apostate or a liar, but he is... Because he wouldn't do what was needed on January 6th? Right, and there, he simply cannot know Jesus if he made that decision. Wow. Um, here's another line from a different guy at the Claremont Institute. If you're actually in a war, even if it's a cold war, you behave differently. Hmm. You're, you're less inclined to compromise. You're more aggressive. In war, you don't negotiate until you've won. 
Right. Now, these are like scholars at a think tank called the Claremont Institute. These are not like Proud Boys, but the language is in the same zip code. We're going to put on the full armor of God and we're going to storm the Capitol. Right. Um, Full armor of God, armor of God. I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. Yeah, take our, our, our American gun culture in there, too, and the long history of... We also have the wellspring of the Revolutionary War, um, that founding victory by violence, mm-hmm. re- by revolutionary violence. Yeah, That's we proved that it works. It, and I've, um, I've long uh, there's been... Language, there was language in January 6th or about a new American revolution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I've long been captivated, along with many of my evangelical peers, um by the black coat regiment in the revolutionary war i don't know about them tell me about the black uh, coat regiment select group of soldiers who i think they were direct under the uh, leadership of a certain general washington and they if and this might even be a myth dug up um great awakening preacher it's been so Jonathan long since Edwards, tra- George Whitfield. Yes, they dug up Edwards and they cut up his robe and incorporated it into their epaulets. Wow. As a part of saying what we're doing is a continuation of this work. The awakening and the revolution are the same movement. Wow. You'll want to check that that the data on that before we post that. But <laughs> but you know the the spirit of religious counter-revolution um so now let me argue with myself just a little bit some of my heroes like dietrich bonhoeffer and martin niemoller and karl Barth during the 30s as they saw the swallowing up of their country and their church by nazism um were attempting a religious resistance. I don't know that they would ever have used the language of religious counter-revolution, but I don't know that they would have completely dismissed it. Um, the idea that we need to reclaim a faithful church from Nazified corruption, or we need to reclaim Germany from fascist Nazified evil, that's not too distant from what they were hoping for. At least they were hoping to bear faithful Christian witness, right? But here, this religious counter-revolution language, it's a new thing in American history. I argue towards the end of that chapter, chapter four, that the American Revolution itself was not understood by almost anybody as a religious counter-revolution to like British secularism. It wasn't viewed that way. It was just a different paradigm. But now, religious counter-revolution language is in the air. And it's dangerous in part because of the of the prox proximity of the language to to the embrace of violence it is radical language and it is radicalizing to routinely use that language when every election has somebody saying this is a war for ultimate stakes a battle between good and evil um that's not the language of democracy that's the language of uh, revolution right and the so I have I have been listening, but I've been Googling. It was Whitfield. They dug up George Whitfield and retrieved scraps of his clothing as talismans. Yeah, basically. Yeah. As totems. 
uh, to protect them and declare their allegiance with the God of the Awakening. Yeah. Um, so. Ushistory.org. Okay. Let me just say at a, at a church level, if pastors and people of churches embrace this as their mission, this is not kingdom of God. This is not bearing faithful Christian witness. This is this is an embrace of a kind of language that I believe to be um, inconsistent with the ministry and witness of Jesus, especially because a lot of the agenda of the religious counter-revolution is suppressing the, the rights and human dignity of people who are believed to be less than. Um, if the religious counter-revolution involves you know, putting women back in into the subordinate position that they were in and, and discrimination against LGBTQ people and reversing the civil rights movement and uh, violating religious liberty and liberty of conscience and uh, overturning human rights protections for those we don't like. It's just wrong. The agenda is wrong. And to wrap it in Christianity is to make it wronger. When we, when we wrap our culture wars in Christianity, a type of apocalypticism tends to emerge. Sure, yeah. The, the struggle becomes not a political or cultural one, but cosmic. Right. God and the devil are arm wrestling over the capital. Right. And then those we disagree with are not just people we have principal disagreements with. They are demons. Mm -hmm. And the the boundaries change and the way of speaking changes and uh, the atmosphere that is necessary for civility in a democratic society um, goes away. Yeah, my neighbor used to disagree with me. He used to be dumb or wrong or misinformed, but now he's evil. Right. And you can do different things with evil, evil people. In fact, you may be required to. Mm-hmm. The rules are different when you're yeah. fighting demons. Right. I think it is, an, it is a, a recipe for political violence and threats thereof. So, but in general, maybe we'll leave it here with this idea of religious counter-revolution led by Christians who are fiercely negatively reacting to changes of the society that they don't like and who are increasingly unconstrained by democratic rules of the game, that's the zip code that we're talking about. That's what this book is about on the on the diagnostic side. And um, and we need a better way for Christians to engage the culture that we find ourselves in. All right. So I'm I'm listening and I'm nodding my head, but I'm also thinking about now, a listener who doesn't know us, hasn't read the book, doesn't know you necessarily, ha what they might be thinking. And so, can a Christian, can the church ever resist? Like, we've talked a yes. little about, we've used the image of fascism, we've used the language of Nazis, we've talked about uh, Weimar and despair and Nazi Germany. Um, what about the confessing church when do yeah, we know they, we're doing that they resisted by 
attempting to keep their doctrine from being corrupted by Nazism, which was a big achievement. They resisted by attempting to keep their church practice from being corrupted by Nazism, like kicking out people of Jewish descent, which was what everybody else was doing, right? Eventually, some of them resisted by rescuing Jews from the Holocaust. Um, when they could raise a voice of protest, when that was permissible, they did. Um, they resisted by training um, leaders who would teach something different from what the state churches were teaching. Um, so it was a strategy of protest when that was possible, uh, um, rescue, which was civil disobedience, basically secret civil disobedience, um, that during the Holocaust, I mean, um, doctrinal clarity and, um, uh, you want to say protecting, protecting the church's own integrity. Eric Metaxas thinks that that is what these reactionary elements are doing. How do we um, know he's not right? Well, I think that that to the extent that the re, that the uh, actions of his side are confined to the things I just described, I don't see a problem with it. Um, but to the extent that that it involves overturning democratic rules of the game, um, flirting with the January 6th insurrection type spirit, um, I think that's a very different kind of thing, right? I think Metaxas, from what I can see, um, went around the bend during the Trump years and hasn't quite come back to the zone of um, democratic discourse, the, the kind of discourse that Christians should be involved in in, in a democracy, because democracy is worth preserving. Okay, so if we, let, let's break the rules and just pick up the the story of the Kirchenkampf, of Bonhoeffer and the Nazi regime. Let's lift them out of Imperial Germany, or Third Reich imperialism, and put them in democratic United States. Does Bonhoeffer behaves differently now? Yes, because he has he has uh, resources uh, within um, the political system to openly defy and and, and to to uh, argue for uh, different kinds of policies and to resist the violations of human rights and um, to vote out a fascist party and replace it with a democratic one. Um, in other words, uh, the problem with the Nazi comparison is mm -hmm. it was a fascist dictatorship that had consolidated power and we don't have that. And I think we have, we must use the means of the democratic process when it is available and it is available. Awesome. I, I think that was worth pursuing a little bit. Yeah, yeah I think so too. Because there, we have the the church is expected to act in the world, right? That's, that's what we do. Act. Yeah, yeah. All right, that's ethics. Yes. And this is Kingdom Ethics, friends. Thank you for joining us today. We uh, look forward to continuing this conversation with you. Make sure you, if you're following along, that you reach out, uh, give us a five star review, leave a quick review, say something nice. Um, 
But yeah, we, we'd love to hear from you too. Maybe you have something not so nice to say. Uh, if it's civil, if it's in good faith and you send it over, we try to engage when we can. So we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to be able to talk with you. You can find us in all of our social medias. We're easy to find because we just use our names. Uh, David P. Gushy and Rev. Jeremy Hall are how we're represented online. Come find us. We'll see you soon. Thanks for listening.